Let's pray together, church. Father, we bow before you. Lord, thankful for another morning to be able to worship you, to be able to praise you, and Father, to be able to hear from your word. And we pray now, Lord, that you would be speaking powerfully to us. We believe, Lord, in the power of your word. We believe, Lord, that what you have to say to us will not return void, but it will accomplish, Lord, what you have intended it to accomplish in us and through us. So, God, by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, we pray that you would have your way among us. Open our eyes that we might behold the wonderful truths of your law this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Well, church, if you're not in Ruth chapter 4 yet, uh, go ahead and turn there. Uh, We are finishing off the book of Ruth this morning. It's hard to believe that we started this book eight weeks ago. And uh, I think the timing of this has been so important in light of all that we're going through. And I think God has been so faithful to teach us so much through this book and through this story. And I began this series in the very first message talking about this illustration of a tapestry and how often we see that the frazzled, frayed ends uh, at the backside of the tapestry. And I want you to hear this quote from John Piper that really pulls this together for us and I think will serve us so well as we look at God's word this morning. Morning. He said this, he said, as we look at life from the backside of the tapestry, and most of the time, what we see is loose threads, tangled knots and the like. But occasionally, God's light shines through the tapestry, and we get a glimpse of the larger design with God weaving together the darks and lights of existence. Perspective is so difficult in the moment. We often see only what's right in front of us. And we need to see our life right now in light of the bigger picture. And right now, what God is doing at the end of the book of Ruth is he's taking that tapestry, the backside where we see the frayed ends, and he is flipping it over so that we can see how the master weaver has been at work to show us the big, beautiful picture of all that he has been doing and how it is supposed to impact the way we live our lives. You see, when you have the big picture in mind, it gives you better perspective on what you're doing. And it's important to see the big picture in this story, the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. It's important to see the big picture in God's story, all that he's been doing before this and beyond this. And in light of that, it's important for us to consider our story. And I want to look at those three aspects this morning. I want us to consider first this story and then God's story. And then in light of those things, I want you to consider your story. So let's read the text together this morning. Let's begin at verse 13 of chapter 4. Here's what it says. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Here we are seeing everything brought to its close, to its natural conclusion. And so I want us to first consider this story. We need to look at the big picture of this story. What's interesting as we come to these final verses is that we see the end of the story in terms of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. We are getting some closure at the end here. But we see that the author is writing likely at the time of David or after the time of David. So here's why that's important. We are seeing that the narrator has not been writing this story simply as it is unfolding. He's not documenting it in real time. He's unfolding the story long after it's occurred. In other words, he has had the big picture in mind the entire time. He knew the ending when he wrote the beginning. Some novelists begin writing stories with a lot of uncertainty about how it's going to end up. They simply write the story as they go along and they take different paths and trajectories based on how they feel things are moving. Other novelists begin with a very clear design in mind. They have sketched out the entire structure. They actually know the ending long before the beginning. And that's exactly in one sense what the author here of Ruth is doing. He understands that there has been a structure and a design and a natural conclusion that he was working towards. It's so important to see this because we need to be reminded how this story began. It is unfolding in different stages, and it began in the context of conflict, if you remember. Uh, it was written likely in the era during the time of 1200 B.C., that's the context. It's the time of the judges where the people of God had rebelled against God and they did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time of religious and social chaos. And we find out at the very beginning that there is a famine in the land, in the land of Israel, the land of promise. And that signifies to us that there has been rebellion against God, even amongst his own people. God had cursed the land. God's word had been very clear that when they turned against him, there would be consequences. And famine was one of the clear consequences laid out in the word of God in Leviticus chapter 26, for example. And this was supposed to be a wake-up call for God's people to turn back to him. And instead, what we see is that Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they turn away from God and march into enemy territory into the land of Moab. It gets tragically worse for them in the land of Moab. Elimelech dies. Elimelech and Naomi have two sons, and both of them die. Those two sons were married, but they were childless. And so you have Naomi as a widow, and Ruth and Orpah, the daughters-in-law, as widows. And the difficulty and the challenge for them in the ancient world would have been massive. There's so much darkness at the beginning of this story. We see so much sin, both corporately and individually. 
We see the effects of sin playing out. And I just want to make it very clear, and I'm going to say this a number of times this morning, but sin is always a wake-up call to return to God. Always a wake-up call to return to God. It's a wake-up call that we need redemption, that we have a massive problem that only God can fix. And that has been one of the consistent threads throughout this story. And then we find out that Ruth and Naomi, they turn back to the land of Israel. And in effect, what we're seeing is they're turning back to the God of Israel. Ruth herself has this beautiful conversion experience in chapter one, where she says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. She places her faith and trust in the God of Israel and she finds her identity in the people of God. And God then begins to bless Ruth and Naomi. And again, there's little glimmers of hope that we begin to see as the story unfolds into chapter two, following chapter one, where Naomi believes that she has somehow been cursed by God, that she is, she's bitter and she feels empty and depleted as if God has turned against her. All of a sudden, the, the kindness of God begins to shine through the blessings of God in chapter two. We see Ruth wander into the field of Boaz. We see Boaz take notice of her. We see Boaz begin to provide for her. And we find out that Boaz is, in fact, what the Old Testament scriptures refers to as a kinsman redeemer. One who could purchase them out of their poverty. One who could redeem them and restore them and provide for them and help them. And he does so, as we saw last week, at a great cost to himself. At great cost, he purchases them, he redeems them from their plight. And we see here that the story actually ends on this high note of blessing and kindness and light and hope. All these tensions that we saw at the beginning of the story are now resolved. Where there was emptiness, now there's fullness. Where there is tragedy, there's now triumph. Where there is cursing, there is now blessing. Where there is darkness, there is now light. And we see that right away in verse 13. Notice what it says. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then we fast forward into the future around nine months. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. We're launched a little ways into the future here. And we find out that Again, the faithfulness of Boaz reflecting the faithfulness of God to redeem this woman. And now God is blessing them with a child. Remember all those prayers that the community and the elders had prayed over them for offspring, for fertility, for family. Now we see those prayers are coming true, that God hears the prayers of his people, that God is faithful to answer the prayers of his people. And I want you to notice here, it's very specific uh, who is the one responsible for the birth of this child, for all that's taking place, in other words? The Lord, it says in verse 13, gave conception. And I want you to remember that Ruth, according to the context of this story, was married before to one of Naomi's sons, and she was barren. She was unable, apparently, to have a child. Perhaps for up to 10 years, she remained barren. And here, we're supposed to take note of this. It was the Lord who miraculously intervened, and the Lord is being faithful to his promise, and the Lord is being kind to his people. God opens the womb, and she gives birth to a son. 
And interestingly, now the story shifts back away from Ruth in one sense, all the way back to Naomi. We're kind of bookended in a sense in this entire story with Naomi who began one way, but now we see her in a completely different light. We, we see her transformation and we've watched it taking place in some sense before our eyes, but now we see the, the, full, the fullness of this, the conclusion of this transformation. Apparently here the women gather around and they heap upon her these blessings. It's kind of like an ancient baby shower. I'm sure there were cupcakes and diapers flying around everywhere. But what's so sweet is what they incorporate into this is it is a beautiful prayer, which by the way is a great thing to include in every single baby shower, a prayer of blessing. It's so sweet here how they begin to pray and again, what we see is the one who is bitter and empty and felt abandoned by God is now rejoicing and full and restored and blessed by God. And I want you to just to take note of this. The reason she is full and satisfied and filled with joy is because she has returned to God. This child here would be significant not just beyond her, but for her. And it's fascinating here that Naomi actually becomes the nurse, the caregiver for this child. So again, we see uh, this mother-in-law, this grandmother, excuse me, who, who now is able to care for this child. And this child will one day, we're told, even in the, the passage here, will one day care for her. This child would become, in other words, the means of great blessing to her, but again, I want you to see in verse 14 that it is God who is the ultimate source of the blessing. Blessed be the Lord, these women say, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. This is the Lord's doing. And this redeemer, this child, look at how he's referred to her. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. You see, God has been at work this whole time. God is the one who ultimately gives life. God is the one who ultimately sustains life. God is the one who ultimately provides all things for life. And he alone deserves the credit. We can glean that from the way these women respond in this prayer. And the story of Ruth teaches us so many things about the kindness and faithfulness of God. It teaches us so many things about the very nature of God. The first of which is that Sin, by the way, is real and sin is destructive, but God is sovereign and God is faithful. We see this interesting dynamic unfolding throughout this story. We've seen that God is sovereign, but at the same time, we are responsible. That these two things are, in fact, compatible with one another. That God is sovereign in such a way that it doesn't mitigate human responsibility. And humans are responsible in a way that does not diminish God's sovereignty. Both of these tensions exist. And we experience these tensions from a human perspective. And we see them fleshed out here in narrative form in this story. In fact, God works through human means to accomplish his sovereign purposes. We see that God's providence is not disconnected from human responsibility. And that has been, again, a major threat in this story. 
We've seen God use Boaz to bless and care for these two women as a redeemer. We've seen Ruth be used as a means of blessing for Naomi herself. And these women here, they draw attention to just that fact. It says here that Ruth is more to you than seven sons. Seven in the ancient world, and especially in the biblical context, is the ideal number. It's the number of perfection. And so what they're saying here is not just that she's better than seven sons. She's better than the most perfect son. She is as good as it could possibly have gotten for you, Naomi. Look how faithful she has been to you, and look how faithful God has been to you. Ruth has been such a source of kindness. She is such an admirable and a worthy woman here. And she's someone to be admired and respected and emulated as she is seeking to emulate the kindness that's been showed to her by God himself. This is, by the way, in verse 15, is the first time in the whole book we see the word love. And I think that's somewhat significant. Your daughter-in-law who loves you. It's significant because we see that love is not simply something that is words only, but is enacted in deeds. And we know how much the Word of God says about this, especially in the New Testament, that we're to love not only in word, but in deed also. But we see a practical example of that in Ruth. It's incredibly sweet picture, the kindness that we can show to one another the blessing that we can be to one another, the love that we can express to one another and demonstrate towards one another. This love comes in a multitude of ways throughout this book. And in verses 14 and 15, we see that this child, again, would be a source of God's kindness and blessing. Just notice what's said about him. He would be a redeemer, a restorer, a nourisher in her old age. In other words, he will provide strength in her weakness. And just notice this. This is such a precious gift from God. God has truly brought light into the darkness. We began this story with a sense of hopelessness this bleak picture of tragedy and darkness. And we end filled with so much hope, so much joy, so much life, and so much light. And this prayer, by the way, that we see here on these women praying for Naomi and this child, it points towards a greater story. You see, this prayer in many ways is, is prophetic in a sense. And as we consider this story, this story actually forces us to consider, secondly, God's story. This here is a reflection of what God is doing in a greater story. You'll notice here in verse 17, the women of the neighborhood, they gave him a name. Interestingly, that this becomes a communal project. I wonder if we should go back to that, figure out what kind of names we can come up, for, come up with for each other's children. That would be fun. But here, they name this child Obed. And Obed is a significant name. You see, Obed means servant. And it's, it's interesting that they, what they pray for about him is what they name him, that he would serve as a redeemer, that he would serve as one who would restore and nourish And in verse 18 through 22, what we see 
is that this child is in the lineage of a greater king. We get a glimpse of that at the end of verse 17. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse and the father of David. But in verses 18 through 21, we see that there is an extension of the, the genealogy here. The author is calling us to zoom out and understand that in effect, listen, this story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi is a microcosm of God's greater story. It's a paragraph in a much longer book. In the same way that the author is the, uh, the true author, excuse me, of, of Ruth is God. Well, he is the author of a much greater story who knows as well the beginning from the end and who sovereignly and providentially is directing all things toward its ultimate conclusion. So too, God is directing the story of human history toward its grand conclusion. Naomi and Elimelech remind us in one sense of another couple, Adam and Eve, who turned away from God and from the first land of promise, the Garden of Eden. They, like Elimelech and Naomi, do what's right in their own eyes. They rebel, in a sense, against God instead of turning back to God or turning to God. They find themselves as a result of their rebellion against God in a, a time of tragedy under the curse of sin that makes life dark and hard and painful and difficult. And Ruth is in many ways a snapshot of the world we live in as a result of Adam and Eve and their sin. For we live in a time of spiritual darkness just like they did. Because of sin, we see everything around us in total decay and spiritual darkness. We too have dethroned God. Human beings have dethroned God and seated themselves up as the ultimate authority. And we look around us and we see the effects of sin in staggering ways. And how obvious is this right now as we watch the news every single day, especially in the past couple of weeks, as we see all of the chaos and confusion, all of the, the turmoil and disruption, all of the destruction that's taking place. I mean, think about what we've seen just in the past couple of weeks. We've seen senseless murder by those who are supposed to serve and protect. We've also seen a senseless murder of those who are supposed to be serving and protecting. We've seen racism and racial divide. We've seen political posturing on both sides of the aisle, leveraging these situations and distorting the narrative to advance their cause. We've seen anarchy and rebellion. We've seen riots and looting. And I just want you to see this. We've seen injustice beget more injustice. We have seen firsthand in graphic ways the ugliness of sin. And while we're quick, listen, to see and condemn sin in others and in the world, and of course there's a place for that, and of course that's absolutely necessary as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, I wonder how quick we are to condemn the sin within us. Sadly, we're watching the world react to sin with more sin. Sadly, we can be guilty of doing the same thing. So let me say this again as clearly as possible. Sin is a wake-up call to return to God. 
Sin is not a call to take matters into our own hands. Sin is not a call to be the ones who believe that we are the ultimate authority and we ought to enact the justice that people deserve. For the word of God says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay. We need to be reminded that as we see all this, listen, in one sense, in the grand sense, only God can bring light into the darkness. And just as Naomi and Ruth were given a message of hope in the midst of their rebellion, that there was a redeemer. God gave Adam and Eve in the midst of their rebellion great hope. He told them too about someone who would one day come and redeem them. He gave them the promise that he would not leave humanity in the ugliness of sin, but he would come to redeem and restore and reconcile. And in Genesis 3.15, listen to the words of Scripture. Here's what he says as he's cursed the, the earth because of sin. In the midst of all of that, here's the glimmer of hope, the first hint and taste of the gospel we see in the Word of God. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is hope. Satan will not be victorious in the destruction and division he is causing through sin. Instead, God will come to the rescue, and he will do so through a human redeemer, a human and divine redeemer. There is going to be one, he told them, who would restore the broken world and redeem lost sinners reconciling them to God, restoring, in fact, all of creation, not just back to its original design and condition, but something far superior and greater. And while the world continues to listen to do what is right in their own eyes, we see that this also, after God gave this promise to Adam and Eve, was absolutely true. Sin began to unravel the world so much so that God destroyed it in a flood because sin was so pervasive. He starts again with Noah, and he gives him the same kind of commands he gave to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, be my image bearers on this earth. Do good. Serve me. Be righteous. Display me. But sin is so powerful its grip is so strong that very quickly we find out, even in the life of Noah, sin begins to cause more destruction all the way up to chapter 11 where we see the Tower of Babel, all of humanity united in the rebellion against God. And then God scatters them as a consequence of their sin across the face of the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God plucks one man out of the many, the multitude on the earth. He plucks him out of his pagan idol worship. He plucks him out of his hopelessness, and he calls him to himself. And then he gives him this promise, this covenant. Listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, 2 and 3, he says this, And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, when you hear that word bless, 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 you need to think this. God is preparing to undo the curse, 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 curse of sin. 
And he's channeling that promise in Genesis 3.15 all the way through Abraham and this new covenant he's making with him. It's getting clearer and clearer who this one is going to be who's going to come and make all things right. And you see Ruth stands as a book that continues to unfold the grand story of redemption. This child, Obed, he would be the father of Jesse, who would be the father of David. And again, the author here in Ruth is telling us that there's a much bigger story that God is writing here. There's so much more that God is accomplishing through Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. In fact, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are pointing towards someone in their physical lineage, David. Yes, yes, King David, the, the great king of Israel, the paradigmatic king, the one in whom all other kings of Israel are compared against and contrasted with. And you see, David in the scriptures is painted as a messianic figure. And you see, God promises David something unique as well, extending, again, this idea that God is going to come and bless, that someone's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David, and he says to him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises that he would have someone in his line seated on the throne forever. One of his sons would be an everlasting king. And under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is revealing to us through his word, his divine rescue plan for humanity, his great story of redemption. And this genealogy is incredibly important in the framework of scripture. And what we might be quick to kind of look at, scan quickly, and glance over is, listen, it is the high watermark of this story. It is the logical terminus, the end point, the conclusion to where this author has been driving us to. Do not treat this uh, tritely, trivially. This is critical for understanding what God is doing. In fact, it's so important that Matthew in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Matthew, he picks up on the genealogy of David. And in chapter 1, verse 6, Matthew actually reiterates exactly what we see here. And he includes Ruth the Moabite in the line of not only King David, but of King Jesus, the one to whom David was ultimately pointing towards. You see, Matthew connects the dots for us of God's great story. And he drives us to this one individual, the one of Genesis 3.15, the one of Genesis 12, the one of 2 Samuel chapter 7, the one of Ruth chapter 4, and countless other passages and events and patterns and people throughout the Word of God. They're all pointing us to one individual, and his name is Jesus the Son of God. He is our great Redeemer. He is our only hope. The Redeemer in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The King who would sit on the throne forever and rule and reign in righteousness and justice and bring about a, a rule of peace across the earth. 
And isn't it incredible that in God's story, he chooses a Moabite woman to be in the line of King David and better yet, King Jesus? Isn't that staggering when you think about it? Jesus comes from Gentile Moabite blood. The enemy, listen, the foreigner, the enemy, the outcasts of Israel is now included in the physical line of Jesus used by God to bring the Savior of the world into the world. So why, why would God emphasize that he's using Ruth, a Moabite, to do just this, to bring about his plan of redemption and salvation for the world? Well, I'll give you one reason, because it shuts the mouth of racial arrogance. It just ends the conversation right there. You see, it's grace, not race, that gets us into the family of God. There is no room for racial superiority in the kingdom of God. All are welcome in the family of God for all are saved the same way by grace through faith. Listen, racial division is the result of sinful rebellion. Racial unity is the result of divine reconciliation. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can paint a picture of racial unity like we're supposed to see in the church of Jesus Christ, like we'll one day see in the future new heavens and new earth where people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language gather around the throne of God and worship the Lamb who was slain. How important is this message in light of all that we're seeing, all of the racial tensions that are being ratcheted up, all of the gas that's being poured on the fires of racial division? And loved ones, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come and how we ought to respond to all that we're seeing take place, all of the injustice all of, of the unfairness, all of the sin and the ugliness that we see happening in real time around us. We're going to get into this and we're going to talk about how we as followers of Jesus Christ and how the church of Jesus Christ ought to be responding in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. You see, God's story teaches us that amidst all the unrest, amidst all the hostility, Amidst all the division, there is a place and a person in whom we can find peace and rest. One who gives us great hope and great confidence that justice will be served, if not now, one day in the future. God's story teaches us that rest, peace, justice, and blessing for the world, listen, not just for us as individuals, but for the world is found in the one king who would defeat sin and death, who would take the punishment that we deserved, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the one who would rise from the grave and be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And his reign, here's what the author is pointing to, his reign would be the answer to 2 Samuel 7. It would be an everlasting reign because he is an everlasting king who has conquered our greatest enemies. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the book of Ruth is not ultimately about Ruth. It's not about Naomi. It's not about Boaz. It's about the unfolding story of God's faithfulness to rescue and redeem all of humanity. It's about Jesus. 
This story is about God's story, which makes it finally, listen, about your story. God's story is ultimately about Him, but it involves you too. God is the only main character in this story, but there are plenty of other secondary characters. There is one overarching plot line and one ultimate conclusion. The question we need to ask as we conclude this story and we look at God's great story is this. Where does your story fit in? This story, again, started with weeping and sorrow, pain and tragedy, and it ends with joy and blessing, with fulfilling, fulfillment excuse me, and triumph. Will this be true for you? Will this be your story? Because it can be for all of those who trust in King Jesus. And we can say, like was said to Naomi, that God has not left us without a Redeemer. No matter, listen, how dark the darkness is, no matter how hard and challenging life can be, we have the hope and light of Jesus Christ. And we desperately need that perspective, perhaps now more than ever. We need the perspective that only God can give to us. You see, we are a gospel-centered church. In other words, we are seeking first the kingdom of God. We believe that all of Scripture is pointing towards this beautiful story of redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. All of the Word of God is directing us to Him and His glory and what He has done for us in the cross and resurrection. It means, by the way, that we are understanding our lives in light of the big picture. That's what it means to be gospel-centered in your life, that you understand your life in light of the big picture of what God is doing in the world. What God has done, what God is doing, and what God shall do. And this is the driving motivation of our lives. This is the driving motivation of our church. And these stories, this story of Ruth and God's great story, they give us so much perspective. They give us some very important application and instruction for how we live in the present moment. Let me just give you a few thoughts on that. First, we are to know God's purposes. We know, listen, loved ones, we know that we have the will of God in the word of God. It is now incumbent upon us to be those who know the word of God, who deeply understand the will of God. We must be anchored in his words. We must understand what his word says about sin, about the world that we live in. We must understand what it says about grace and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation. We must understand in ever increasing ways what God's word teaches us about these things. We must understand what the word of God says about returning to God and repenting and believing in faith. Secondly, we are to trust his promises. We see that in this, this book. It's a call to trust God's promise. We see that in the unfolding story of God's word. God has made promises and God is a faithful God. We are to hold fast to his promises, believing that in his promises, he has declared that he will hold fast to us. In the midst of the storms, in the midst of the darkness, we cling to the faithfulness of God, to the promises of God, to the character of God that that 
undergirds those promises, believing that God is who he says he is. And, and these are the things we need to preach to ourselves so regularly because our hearts get so out of joint so quickly. Circumstances overwhelm us. The storms of life knock us to and fro, and we forget what the Word of God says. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, so many of our problems come from listening to our heart instead of preaching to our heart. Such incredible counsel. Preach the truth of God's word into your heart. This is the battle we must fight. This is the battle, battle by God's grace and the power of God's spirit. We must win on a daily basis. Third, notice this, that we are to feed on his provision. On him as our daily bread. A man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We must learn to abide in him and bear much fruit. Fourth, our story must be ordered by his precepts. We see this in this story. Men and women and even a community who are so informed by the word of God, it forms a culture a culture of redemption, a people, at least most of which, seem to be at this point loving God and His Word and obeying God and His Word. We must be these people who look to the Word of God to influence how we respond to situations and circumstances, who are not ruled by our emotions or our experiences, but are governed by the clear commands of God's Word. You see, this story and God's story are deeply connected to your story. But too many of us are looking to fit God into our story instead of understanding how we fit into God's story. For too many Christians, the gospel is simply a footnote to their life. It's an appendix. It's an add-on to their life. It doesn't define ultimately who they are. It's a part of who they are, but it doesn't really truly define who they are. And the Christian needs to understand that what Jesus has done in his redemption, what the gospel provides us in identity in Jesus Christ, it is our life. We are nothing apart from him. I can do nothing apart from him. Like I quoted last week, without redemption, life is not worth living. But listen, with redemption, not only is life worth living, it is true living. For in God's story, you find your ultimate purpose, the reason for your existence, and the path for your ultimate and eternal enjoyment. We find in the gospel that we have been given new life, that we are a new creation, and we have a new master who calls us to a new mission. Our king calls us into his service, and we are to make it our aim to please the one who has enlisted us into his service. You see, God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, has brought light into the darkness and is calling us to be in this world his light in the darkness. And today, right now, some of you are being called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light. Maybe you've been sitting through this entire series. Maybe you've been asking questions. You've been listening. You've been contemplating. You've been thinking about your own life. And maybe right now you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior. And that God has not left you in the darkness, but he has come bursting forth in the blazing light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's come for you. 
And God is inviting you today, right now in this moment, come find your story, not separate from, but deeply woven into the tapestry of my great story of redemption. Let Ruth's story of death to life, of tragedy to triumph, of emptiness to fulfillment, of darkness to light, be your story today. Return to God by faith, repenting of your sin and receiving God's grace in full. Looking to Jesus Christ as your only hope, as the one who died in your place, who shed his blood so that he might purchase and redeem you out of the slave market of sin and death. That he might reconcile and restore you to the relationship with God that you were designed to know and enjoy. Full forgiveness, full adoption into his family, blessings now and into eternity available to you. Grab hold of it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for us who are saved, your story as a Christian is actually to extend God's story of redemption. He knows the end of the story And so do you and I. But he's still writing. Listen, he's still writing the final chapter. In fact, the New Testament repeatedly tells us that we are living in the last days. In other words, we are living the closest to the end time that's ever been. I mean, that's just logically true. But I just want you to hear this. Biblically speaking, in the timeline of God, in the grand story of redemption, this is the final stage. We are awaiting one event, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and establish his eternal, everlasting kingdom, merging the new heavens and the new earth into eternity, an earth filled with his glory, filled with those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus and who will forever praise him for the redemption that he has accomplished and applied to their lives. The story of the church and the people of God is to proclaim this story. We proclaim him. It is to be an extension of God's redemptive activity in this world, like Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, to be used by God to further, listen, his purposes here and now, to advance his kingdom through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's where we're headed, loved ones. Revelation 21, just listen to these words. The end of the story. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the end of the story of redemption. But it is the beginning of an entirely new book where God is making all things new. Here's the big picture, loved ones. Here's the perspective we need. One day soon, every bit of darkness will be eradicated. No more sin, 
no more sorrow, no more tears and pain, no more cancer or car accidents, no more racism or riots, no more hatred and war, no more starvation and suffering, no more injustice and rebellion, no more destruction and death. The darkness will give way to the overwhelming light of the glory of God and all things will be made new. Loved ones, take heart. In the end, there will be no more darkness. There will only be light. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you and you alone can bring light in the darkness. We thank you, God, that you have given us a front row seat of seeing this story unfold, not only in the life of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, But throughout the pages of Scripture, from cover to cover, we see your good providence and sovereignty at work to accomplish the salvation and redemption of humanity. And Father, we pray that our story would fold into this grand story and that we would advance your great story of redemption to the ends of the earth for the glory and honor of your great name. Father, use us, we pray. God, do it for our good. Increase our joy in the doing of this, Father, and increase the glory that will come to your name as more and more people are added into the story of redemption. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.